Good morning again. Uh, like I said at the beginning of the service, our church is in the middle of what we're calling a generosity initiative. Sometimes it goes by the name of a building campaign, although we're trying not to call it that. Because it's not really about raising money for the building. Uh, it's really about uh, generosity in general, but also, too, what our church is doing and what our church is about. Uh, the elders and I, a few years ago, spent a lot of time thinking about who we were as a church and what we wanted the church to be. And we landed on prioritizing a couple of things. Number one, proclamation of God's word. And number two, community, uh, our relationships with each other as a family of God's people. Uh, As it happens, uh, the next two weeks of sermons in Ephesians will fit pretty well with those things. Today we're looking at uh, the role of God's word in the life of the church. And then next week I'll do uh, the next two and a half chapters of Ephesians and we'll look more generally at the relationships between God's people and how they treat each other in contrast to the way the world relates to itself and the way people treat each other outside of the church. So today we're in Ephesians 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promised in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given by the working of his power. To me, though I am the least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he's realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you with your apostle Paul for being the one who works so mightily and wonderfully. Uh, in ways that we can hardly imagine. You want such better things for us than we do. And we ask this morning, Lord, that you would bless us with the goodness of revealing your word to us so that we might respond with joy and with praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the last week or so, I had two completely different conversations with two completely different men about what it means to believe in Jesus, what Christianity is all about. Uh, These two guys had two totally different backgrounds. They were in two totally different stages of life. They had no idea who each other were. 
but they had the same basic approach to spirituality and the same basic objection to Christianity and to organized religion in general. Uh, in slightly different ways, each of these two guys believed that the Bible and the church were not trustworthy or reliable guides to spiritual reality. And yet, like many, many people in our society, both of these men believe that their own hearts, their own subjective senses and emotions, they believe that these things were reliable guides to finding and knowing God. One of them said that he regularly prayed to Jesus, even though he also was very confident that the New Testament is totally made up. Now, Christianity is something to be embraced and experienced personally. Christianity, Christian spirituality, is not less than intellectual or institutional, but it's certainly a lot more. In the second half of our passage this morning, we see the Apostle Paul praying that the Ephesians would personally and even very subjectively embrace and enjoy communion with God through Christ. So that's not the issue. The, not, the issue is not whether or not there is a, a very important subjective, even emotional side to what it means to be a Christian and to know God. But in the first half of this chapter, the first half of Ephesians 3, Paul, without blushing, without any shame, says that Christianity, true spiritual reality, that it not only can, but that it must be mediated through the written and the verbal testimony of a small group of men called the apostles. Paul's one of them. The New Testament is a compilation of documents from and through these and only these men. Jesus chose and appointed them specifically to speak on his behalf to the world. Their words and their message and their commands are to be heard and accepted as Jesus' very own. This is why written scripture has been so fundamentally important to the life and the practice of the Christian church for its entire history. And so the ultimate point of this passage today is to lead us into a deep and personal, even a subjective enjoyment of a loving relationship with God. But the way you get there is through the testimony of this guy named Paul who lived 2,000 years ago. And so as shocking and as offensive as it is to the world, it was offensive back then and it's offensive today, the Bible is very clear. If you would truly and fully know and relate to God, you have to go through the words of the apostles. You have to go through the Bible. And so today we are specifically looking at the fundamental and the essential role of Paul himself if we're going to enjoy the love of God in Christ. And so that's our first point. Why we need Paul. Why we need Paul. Now look at verse 1 there in chapter 3. 
Paul has just been explaining, we saw this last week, Paul has just been explaining to us this glorious plan that God has to recreate humanity in and through the church. And then he says, for this reason, that's a way of saying therefore, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. So he's about to launch into this prayer for the Ephesians to respond rightly to God's glorious plan to recreate humanity. But then he takes a detour to explain and defend his own role in that plan. He doesn't even actually finish his sentence. He breaks off halfway through. He kind of does this a lot. Any of you kids who are currently having to learn grammar, uh, try this on your parents or your teacher. That Paul did it. <laughs> he breaks off his sentence. He doesn't finish it. And he starts launching into who he is and why we should take him so seriously and why he's so important. And so he starts out very interestingly. He starts out by describing himself in terms of his suffering. In terms of his suffering, he says, I, Paul, a prisoner. I am in prison for Jesus. He'd been arrested in Jerusalem by the local authorities there. He was wrongfully accused of rejecting the Mosaic law. He was wrongfully accused of violating that law by bringing pagans into the middle of the temple. And at his arrest, uh, he insisted on his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to the emperor himself, which then sets him off on this multi-year imprisonment in many cities while he's waiting for his trial. And it's during this period of imprisonment that he writes to the Ephesians. And in the letter, he's just been telling us about how Jesus has triumphed over the world's evil authorities, uh, that Jesus is now ruling over our entire universe, and that the church is now victorious with him. And yet, here we have the Apostle Paul wasting away in bureaucratic purgatory. In many ways, his situation is pretty embarrassing. He looks very weak. He looks very powerless. He looks very ineffective. Does that mean that God has rejected him? Does that mean that he never really spoke for God to begin with? Does it mean that God's plan has failed? Or that maybe Jesus is not really in charge after all if this is how he lets his messengers get treated? And so the Ephesians are tempted to reject Paul, or at least to become totally deflated and ashamed about what's happening to him. Uh, in many ways, he's making them and the church look pretty bad. Uh, we've seen in the last few years how a lot of Christians have gotten really embarrassed about pastors and churches uh, running afoul of the government when they tell you not to be doing things that God says you should be doing. In similar way, it's kind of like how a lot of professing Christians today have grown pretty embarrassed about Paul himself. People are still embarrassed about Paul. Uh, they don't like what he says about marriage. They don't like what he says about sexuality or about slavery. Uh, he can be quite abrasive. He can be very black and white. He can be kind of exclusive. A lot of people kind of want to ignore Paul or move away from him and say, well, why don't we just stick with Jesus? Uh, maybe parts of the Gospels that we like a lot. Uh, but they need Paul. The Ephesians need Paul, and we need Paul. He is Jesus' man, even if he's in prison, even if he's kind of embarrassing, or there's things about him that our world looks at and laughs at. Paul does not even seem to think that his imprisonment is an unfortunate disappointment. He actually sees the imprisonment, like his other forms of suffering, as a sign that he's really a real apostle of Jesus. Uh, he's suffering just like Jesus did for the sake of God's word and God's mission. Paul is a prisoner, but he's still an apostle. First of all, because of this mystery that's been revealed to him. God's mystery has been revealed to him. 
He says to the Ephesians, you've heard about the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Paul talks about himself a lot in this paragraph, and that's intentional. In verse 4, he talks about my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it's now been made known to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Verse 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister. Verse 8, to me, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so like I said before, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he appointed and he trained a small group of people to be his designated spokesmen in and for the early church. These are the apostles and the prophets. The apostles themselves, they were similar to the prophets in the early church, but they were a special category. The apostles themselves were the primary spokesmen as they were going to be the ones to write down Jesus' words for the entire church, for its entire history, as the capstone, the climax, to Israel's own scriptures. And so these are what we now call the New Testament, that's the apostles' writings, and the Old Testament. Those are the scriptures of Israel. The apostles had to be eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. And so this is really important. They were not just writing about their own woo-woo experiences that they've had of God. They're telling you, I want to tell you my private uh, encounter I've had with God. That's not what the New Testament is. Uh, The apostles are giving historical testimony to what Jesus was saying and doing in this world. The apostolic message was and is not given to everybody. Paul keeps repeating that point. You can only hear from God and get back to God ultimately through the apostles. When you reject the apostles, you're rejecting Jesus. And so Paul says that his and their message is the unveiling of what had previously been a profound mystery, something that God was hiding from the world. Now, what is this mystery? The mystery, Paul says, is that in the Messiah of Israel, Jesus, God is now recreating the human family. He's drawing people together from all nations to be his very own. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, you know there is a lot in there about the nations outside of Israel coming to hear and know about the one true God. But most of the time, they're coming to know God as a judge. They're coming to know him in punishment. Uh, with ethnic and political Israel, apparently, to be ruling over them as kind of the kings of the world. But Paul says this great mystery that's now revealed to the apostles is that Jesus is the true Israel and that he is calling all people from all nations in and to himself as full heirs of Israel's promise. And it's not just about Uh, national or cultural diversity for the sake of diversity. This is not just about having more interesting foods after a church at our potlucks, although God loves and delights in all of these wonderful ways that he's made people all so differently. Part of this we have to understand is that the word Gentiles was not just a a kind of a bare uh, abstract term for a group of people, but that it was also something like a synonym for degenerates, for deplorables these hateful, disgusting people out there who do all these horrible things and eat all these horrible foods. Paul is saying, God's bringing the Gentiles in. He's bringing the degenerates in. He's calling them to be his own and he's changing them. He's not just keeping this for people on the inside. This is for outsiders too. 
And so Paul says, without any embarrassment, yes, I have been uniquely appointed to receive this revelation. And so we need to listen to him and we need to stick to him. We need to stick to his words. But it's not just that God's mystery was revealed to him, as impressive as that is. It's also, and it's ultimately, that God's mystery is revealed through him. God's mystery is not just revealed to Paul, it's ultimately revealed through Paul. You see, the whole point of God revealing something to the apostles that he's not revealed to anybody else is so that they can communicate it to the whole world. In verses 3 and 4, Paul says that the Ephesians, and of course we, should be paying very close attention to what he is writing in his letter. Paul says, read this, think about it. We should be meditating on the words of the apostles in order to better understand what God has told them. Paul says, when you read this, you'll be able to perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. And so you get to the mystery of Christ by sitting and meditating on what Paul says, by chewing on his grammar, by looking and saying, what does this paragraph have to do with that paragraph? How does this fit in with other things that he wrote, with other things the apostles wrote? What does it all have to do with what Israel was given in the Old Testament? And so contrary to what many people today believe, uh, they believe that you can find and you can hear from God most clearly by listening to your own heart. This text says that we can find and hear from God most clearly and fully by listening to and reading the written words of Jesus' apostles. Scripture. This is why our own church makes such a priority of the written word. It's why it fills our worship services from beginning to end, why we spend such a large chunk of the service on preaching. It's why you pay me to spend so much of my time preparing these sermons as I go through books of the Old Testament and the New Testament back and forth. It's why our other events and our programs during the week revolve around the Bible. One of the primary reasons we're raising money to renovate this building is so that we can better situate ourselves to better share God's word. Because God's word is where our power is. It's what really transforms people. It's what changes people's lives for years to come. Paul says that his message is for the entire world. And so our own church is not just here for ourselves, but we're here to share God's word with people outside the church, even people around the world. And so with Paul in verse 8, we want to preach to the nations the unsearchable riches of Christ. We want to bring to light for everyone the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Now what is this message? The message is that we, even the deplorable Gentiles, can be heirs of God's riches through God's gracious gift in Christ. That's in verse 6. In verse 12, Paul gets more specific for us. He reiterates what he's already been saying in Ephesians, what makes this message so wonderful. He says, it's in Jesus that we have boldness and access with confidence to the Father through our faith in Jesus. You see, what we and our community and our world need more than anything else, what we need most is not money, it's not to live longer lives, it's not to have happier kids or better jobs. Our deepest need is to know God. It's to be reconciled with the Creator whom we've run away from. It's to be able to approach Him in love and adoration. 
And because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can be adopted into God's family as his children, no matter how much or how seriously we've sinned or we've failed. But the message is not just for the nations. It's not just for people all over the world, as wonderful as that is. Paul says in verse 10 that God's unfolding of his plan to recreate humanity in Jesus is also about revealing his wisdom through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. I've been chewing on this verse a lot for the last couple weeks. It's very strange. It's very mysterious. But it's saying this, through the church of Jesus, through this very church right now, God is showing his glorious power and wisdom to the countless angelic beings in the heavenly dimensions. Both those who have remained loyal to God, we call them angels, but also those who have made demons of themselves by rebelling against God. The modern world uh, hears about this whole spiritual dimension of angels and demons and they laugh and they say, oh, that's silly, that's stupid, that's superstitious. The Bible says, no, 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 this is very real. These beings are incredibly powerful. If one appeared to us right now, we would all fall down in terror. The Bible says there's a gazillion of them everywhere. They have a lot of influence on the world. In the ways that God's word is transforming us and our relationships, in the way that it plays out in our lives and in our church, Paul is saying that God is proving to the angels, proving to the demons, that he's mighty and wise and good. And so the church right now might not be very impressive to the world. A lot of people think uh, church, Christianity, religion, these things are going out. These are old school. We've moved beyond these things. We don't need it. It's not impressive to the world. But it's certainly very impressive to the angelic realm. If you could see in heaven what the angels can see, if you could see from hell what the demons can see, you would clearly see the victory of Jesus over death and sin. In opening up our confident access to the Father, in spite of our terrible sin and our terrible failures, Jesus is demonstrating his cosmic power and glory. And so Paul says in verse 13, don't get discouraged over what I'm suffering for you. Don't be discouraged over my imprisonment, over how silly I look to the world, how silly and pointless and powerless the Bible looks to the world. He says, my suffering is your glory. It's our glory. We need Paul. We need his message. God is transforming us and the world through it. He loves to show his power and his goodness in the midst of the weakness of his servants. We don't like it. We'd we'd love it if God worked in the world by making us successful and powerful and making our lives really easy and comfortable. But that doesn't really show very much about God. It doesn't show that God's good and that God's powerful. God often, not always, God often shows his goodness in our suffering. He did it with Paul. He did it with Jesus. He's doing it with you. So Paul now gets to his prayer that he took this detour, his prayer that the Ephesians would, we, would respond rightly to the apostolic message about sinners from all nations having this confident access to the Father. And so we move from why you need Paul, verses 1 to 13, now how you should respond to Paul. Verses 14 to 21. Uh, These verses have been something of a theme verse for me since I've been your pastor. I have regularly been praying these verses for you since I got here. And so it's special for me to now get to explain them briefly to you. 
Uh, these are wonderful things to be praying for ourselves, to be praying for our church, to be praying for one another. And I would ask you to be praying them for me. But notice, as we look at Paul's prayer there, notice, first of all, whom Paul is asking, whom we are asking. Paul says in verse 16 that he prays to our heavenly Father. And he says he has limitless riches of glory. The Father has all the resources we could possibly need, and he is no cheapskate, Paul says. He loves to be generous to his beloved children. Now, what are these riches? What do we need from him? What should we be asking and expecting from him? Paul says, first of all, verse 16, that the Father, we should be praying and expecting that the Father would strengthen us with power through his spirit in our inner being. He says this means, he goes on, he says, this means that I'm praying that Christ would dwell in your hearts by faith. Jesus is present with us and among us today by the presence and the power of his Holy Spirit. And so when we talk about our inner being or our hearts, we're not just talking about having a private experience, although knowing and loving God is and should be deeply personal. And it doesn't just mean having an emotional experience, although emotions should be a very important part of relating to God. Paul is praying that we would experience God's power over sin, that we would enjoy peace and joy even in the midst of fear and suffering and weakness. All because Jesus is at the very center of our lives. Paul is praying that from the core of our being, we would live by trust and dependence upon him. That Jesus' word would be our guide. That his priorities would be our priorities. That we would love what he loves. That we would hate what he hates. That we would serve other people like we're serving him. That's what Paul means when he says, I'm praying for you that Christ would dwell in your hearts by faith. Paul says we can do that, we will do that, because we're rooted and we're grounded in love. I think he's referring to the love of Jesus. Uh, We are rooted and grounded in the words and the ministry and the death of Jesus, his ongoing ministry now of praying for us and praying for the church at the throne of the Father in heaven. And that because we are aware of those things, because we cherish those things, that we would see and we would know how deeply he loves each one of his people. And so Paul's praying uh, not that we would know the love of Jesus in a shallow way, a way that kind of just quickly fades away. He says, but I'm praying that your roots would grow down really deep, uh, that you would be built on a really strong foundation so that the storms and the droughts of life don't destroy you. You go down deeper than even the suffering of this world into who Jesus is and what he's doing. His second prayer request is related to it. The first one, verse 19, he says, I'm praying that you would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. He doesn't quite specify the, what exactly he's talking about, but I think in the context he's talking about the love of Christ So he's piling up all these different dimensions, you know, length, width, height, depth, all these things. He's underscoring how vast and how immeasurable Jesus' love is for his people. Paul says even in his next phrase that we are to be striving to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You hear what he's doing? He's saying, I'm praying that you would know something that you can't know. Something that is so great, so wonderful, so deep, so unfathomable that you'll never be done finding more of it. It surpasses knowledge. 
We know and we experience the love of Jesus personally. Yes, we do. But Paul is saying and praying that we would also know it and experience it with all the saints, he says. In the life and the relationships and the ministry of the local church and the global church. Because you see, transformation into the kind of abundant life that God wants for us is something that happens in community. It's something that happens through relationships with other believers within the life of the local church around things even as mundane as a church potluck. This is why the church should be such a priority in how and what we pray, in how and what we do with our time and our resources. And then Paul's final request, simple and short, verse 19. He says, I'm praying that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. I think it's a way of praying that we would be filled to the brim, so to speak, with everything that God has for his beloved children, his very best, all doled out from his full and his abundant riches. It means having and experiencing and enjoying his power at the core of our being as we grow in faith and confidence in Jesus. It means that we would be deeply rooted and founded upon his love, a love that not even eternity will give you enough time to measure. And so Paul's prayer leads him into praise, just like it should for us. You see that in verse 20. He says that I, with the whole church, am giving glory to the God who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. And so this apostolic message of reconciliation and peace with God this gift from God, this undeserved gift of bold, confident access into his throne room, it should lead us individually but also as a church into deep joy, deep worship for a God who has worked so mightily through Jesus. How little we expect from God. How little we ask him for. He can and he does so much more for us and for our church than we can even imagine according to the power of Jesus' resurrection now working among us. God's at work in this church. He's at work in the church around the world as the good news of Jesus goes out and transforms us just like it's been doing for thousands of years. Let's pray together that he'd do this in a new and a deeper way. Father, help us to be even more changed by your word than we already are. For those of us who are new to you and to your word, change us for the first time. Transform us. Make us a people who are full of joy, even in the midst of suffering, who are full of love, even for our enemies, who are full of peace, even in the midst of anxiety. Help us, by the power of your word, to faithfully proclaim and to represent and to live in light of this good news of Jesus. Thank you for this confident access we can have to you even right now. For we come in the name of your Son. Amen.